Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Pete Strzok, former Deputy Assistant Director of the Counterintelligence Division of the FBI, now adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, and author of the book, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, which will be coming out in paperback at the end of the month. During his time at the FBI, Pete led the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election, and briefly worked on Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation into any links or coordination between Trump's presidential campaign and the Russian government. Pete, welcome back. Reed, great to be here. Thanks. So I want to cover a couple things. One is the immediate, and the second is sort of longer term. You know, we're 360-some days now away from January 6th, 2021. And as an American, as a former law enforcement officer, and somebody who has spent probably more time than you thought you would dealing with American politics. A year hence, how do you see things? I'm concerned. I think a year has gone by and everything that I see is that we are, as a nation, moving apart in terms of our perception of the truth. I recoil every time I see the most recent poll where people you know, ask about the cause of January 6th or who the actors were behind it. And they look at party lines and, you know, just in a staggering number of Republicans believe that it was not anything related to Donald Trump, whether it was Biden or the Democrats, that, you know, something that is so factually indisputable and so clear that there could be such a difference of opinion and not on the fringe of the parties, but very much within the mainstream of the party is really concerning to me. And so I see a gap. I see that broadening. I think that has enormous implications for what we're looking at at the midterm elections in 2024. But you know, as a law enforcement officer or a former law enforcement officer, I just see a tremendous amount of not only work being done looking back at January 6th, which is extraordinary, but also a threat that exists and is real right now. And, you know, the FBI trying to get their arms around understanding what that threat is now and what it is turning into is an enormous challenge. So last week we had Barton Gelman from The Atlantic on the podcast, and we were discussing his exemplary, incredible article in this month's issue of The Atlantic saying that January 6th was practice. And one of the things he did was he talked to a professor from Chicago named Robert Pape, who did a lot of research into just who the insurrectionists were. A couple of the surprising things was that most of the time around the world, these types of folks tend to be in their 20s and 30s, male, not particularly well-educated, economically dispossessed, maybe socially dispossessed. The people who stormed the Capitol a year ago were in their 40s, white-collar, generally educated, either college or some college, were professionals, and they came from far and wide, some of them with thousands of dollars worth of tactical gear on. So what does that say to you as someone who spent time at the FBI? I mean, the average insurrectionist doesn't fit the mold. 
Bart's article is extraordinary, and I found it very compelling and very well written and researched. And that data you point to, you know, the final point, I think, of what they found is that the only thing that they could find some correlation between the insurrectionists on January 6th amongst that entire group were people that lived in areas where there were significant shifts in the racial demographics of that area. So what that points to me is it is, I think, counterintuitive. I think you would sit and you know, your expectation of who might be drawn to domestic extremism, particularly, you know, sort of white supremacist nationalist type tendencies with a, you know, an ability or willingness to engage in violence and furtherance of those aims. When I look and you see people who are exactly what you said, small business owners, and, you know, certainly people who are very educated, it points to, in my mind, the significant role that perceptions of power and racial imbalances or changes to that power, how strong a force that plays in what is motivating folks, certainly on January 6th. So again, the short way to say that is I think the racial component to what occurred on January 6th is very powerful and perhaps stronger than we understand or anticipated. I think that's true. I think there, and again, I don't have any quantitative data to back this up. I only have what's anecdotal is as somebody who is in that cohort of mid-40s somewhat educated, you know, professional white guy. I also feel like there is a part of it where there is a racial component, yes, in that the demographics have shifted, but also that the world has shifted in that if you were in college in the 90s like I was, there were maybe some things you could say and do that nobody would blink at. And then in the intervening, say, 20, 25 years, those things became socially unacceptable. Then someone like a Donald Trump shows up and says, no, you can be as big an asshole as you want to. Right. Absolutely. And the other thing that's going on is the ability of people to find information and self-select the information that they want based on what they believe or want to hear has been magnified to an extraordinary extent. I mean, I, I started in the FBI and, you know, this is something we can talk about later on. After Oklahoma City bombing, which was in 1994, Congress took a look at what the FBI was doing. And one of the lessons learned was the FBI didn't have a very robust analytic capability, certainly on the terrorism side. So Congress gave the FBI money to hire 60 analysts, which was a huge amount. Still would be, but at the time it was very, very large. And I was part of that cohort of 60 who was hired in 1996. 30 of us went and worked domestic terrorism. 30 went and worked IT. I went on the domestic terrorism side and we were starting out at that point, you know, look, all the old, you know, the, the Aryan nations and the covenant sword and arm of the Lord, but these very, you know, traditional domestic terrorism groups that had gone back into the 70s and 80s. So that sentiment, you know, the things like the Turner Diaries and all these other tracks, which kind of underlie a lot of the domestic terrorism movement, those have always been around. But to your point, it was comparatively hard to get to that information or to get to like-minded people who thought about those things, who wrote about those things, who wanted to kind of advance those ideas. That's been the sea change in what we're seeing now. The power of social media is not anything new anymore. I mean, I think 2016, it burst onto the scene, but we were looking at 2016 from the context of, okay, well, look at what the Russians and look at what foreign nations did to take advantage of social media and the perceptions of the American population and to exacerbate the tensions. But I think what you're seeing now is the evil of what a lot of what social media is doing. It's not so much the way that foreign nations might exploit that, but the way that these truly abhorrent hateful sort of rhetoric and belief systems are manifesting themselves online and are creating a way where people, what used to be fringe ideas, to make it very easy for people to subscribe to, to find like-minded folks to sort of promulgate and continue to amplify those thoughts. And so what used to be a one-off, two-off, a little group here, a little group there, 
Now you have a massive comparative, massive number of adherents who, when the call goes out to, you know, be there, it's going to be wild. And, you know, Trump is saying that, that you get a lot of people who mobilize and in some cases, I think, coordinated the mobilization to get folks to roll into town. So, you know, I want to talk about numbers for a second, because just going back to Gelman's article one more time, something else that Pape saw was that in the course of 2021, they ran a survey in March, then they ran another survey in June. And what they found was that it was the acceleration of the number of people who sort of fit into what he called this committed insurrectionist bucket. You know, it started as like 12 million people. Again, if you extrapolate out, you know, that was March. Three months later, it's 21 million people. Then Gelman refers to a survey in November where it's like 33 million people. Again, if you extrapolate out and Pape says these people are kindling and they're waiting for a spark. The other part that Gelman said was that the Department of Homeland Security had said the biggest domestic threat was this idea of like the lone wolf or the far extremist. But 33 million Americans, like if that many people are radicalized, I mean, that seems to be aside from our instability in the democratic process, having that many people, if it was even 10 percent of that, willing to pick up a weapon and do something about it seems very concerning. It's extraordinarily concerning. And I mean, I think, look, when you look at influencing people's beliefs and, you know, since 9-11, we've done two decades, right, worth of work on countering violent extremism. And one of the ways that the U.S. found through various studies and work to go out and to counter that is you go and you figure out who the opinion leaders are, figure out who the faith leaders are, figure out who the educational respected folks are, figure out who the government, local government officials are, and talk to them finding people who are influential within various physical communities and try and talk to them about messaging. Well, now translate that to the domestic terrorism side. And you go back just you know prior to in the last administration, whether it was a president, whether you have a major news network, whether you have faith leaders who are all not sitting there trying to calm and tamp down passions and beliefs, you have all of these groups coming together to advocate for and advance this idea of aggrievement that Things are being set up, that they are trying to undermine Trump's presidency, that they are trying to steal the election. And whether you were listening to your pastor at church, whether you're tuning in to Tucker Carlson, whether you were listening to Donald Trump, as you look at these traditional people who are thought and opinion leaders as we have set them up in American society, you have this entire ecosystem wherever you are that you're hearing the same messaging that not only are you in fact aggrieved, but you should be aggrieved. And, you know, anywhere you turn, you're getting that message. And so I think it's kindling. I think it is something that has not been called. And again, to the point of what's the Republican leadership saying right now about all this? How many members, Republican members of, forget the House, but on the Senate are willing to say that January 6th was an insurrection and to say out loud that the vote was legitimate and that Biden won? There is no leader within this entire system who is willing to stand up and tell the truth. And so how do I look at this a year later? I see a complete silence off of essentially one half of the aisle in the face of overwhelming fact and truth of what occurred. And yeah, that's concerning because you don't just undo that overnight. You just don't change that in a month or six months. These are things that cast a long shadow into the future. And even if people were to start speaking up now, even if people were to start changing, these are not beliefs that you change overnight or that you fix and move forward from at the drop of a hat. Well, and the one thing that we've, and we've had numerous psychologists and cult experts and all sorts of folks on that say, part of the issue too, is that even if you can get hold of someone individually to have that conversation with them, it's conversation after conversation, which is to say it doesn't scale. 
it metastasizes far faster than any cure can get to it. I think that's right. Again, I mean, you know, I defer to the, I'm not a psychologist, nor do I, you know, study that sort of behavior, but I think that's exactly right. And so the interesting question is, does this behavior change if Donald Trump leaves the picture? I have significant doubt that, you know, a Josh Hawley could step into the role and do the same thing and in the same way that Donald Trump was able to do. So is some of this a cult of personality that relies on the single person and persona of Donald Trump to continue? I think there's probably an argument that it is, but I just think that whatever his role and whatever his continued role into the future, there are people going down the path of perceived aggrievement that, again, doesn't evaporate. You know, it is being written into, you know, the tales that are told around the kitchen table and around the campfire in a way that is very destructive to our national identity. So if we've got this kindling of millions of Americans and we're, we're afraid of a spark, is it Trump saying, get out there and do it? Or is it an externality? Is it a George Floyd type event or something else that sort of sets off Lexington and Concord? Well, it depends on what side of the aisle you're on. And I think an underappreciated aspect of this entire dynamic is we've all been focused on violence from the right, people who are Trump supporters feeling aggrieved. At some point, if these states have rigged electors and electoral boards who decide to send in their own slate of electors who don't represent, say, in 2024, the popular vote of a state goes for Biden and a Republican-controlled board of electors sends in a Republican slate, there may well be violence from the left. But I think from the right, the precipitating event is very much going to be Trump and people around him. I don't think this is the sort of thing where at an individual state level, people will necessarily be able to rile up folks in a way that would precipitate violence. But that's so hard to predict. I think, you know, the dynamics of crowds and perceived grievance and, you know, what then justifies violence. I think there is a reason you didn't see, although there were protests at the state level, they didn't ever precipitate out in the same massive way that January 6th did. A counterpoint would be, it doesn't need to be massive. You need one unbalanced, angry person with an assault rifle, and they can do untold damage and horrific damage. So you don't need a crowd of 5,000 people to storm the Capitol or state house. You can get somebody with an assault weapon who can do enormous damage. And I think that's the concern is when you get a population, as you indicated, that large, 99% of the people are not going to go to violence. Well, if you have a population in the millions and you say, okay, 1% might be inclined to violence, but they need to be provoked. Only a 10th of that 1% might take matters into their own hands. But again, if you're talking a group that large in the thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands, a tenth of 1% is still really, really large. And that's what I worry about. So a few weeks ago, we had Ruth Ben-Ghiat on the show, and she described that Trump had not only voiced grievance for a lot of these folks, but had also provided an umbrella for a lot of the types of people that were not in the political sphere. They weren't mainstream. They weren't socially mainstream because society didn't want them to be. I take, for example, the men in Michigan who were plotting to kidnap and kill Governor Whitmer. So I guess my question for you and your experience is, now that you've got this weird umbrella and you've got these strange comrades, potentially, I mean, how does the guy who owns the mid-sized accounting firm in Kansas City, like, does he really want to sit at the table with the Camp Auschwitz guy? Like, is he okay with that? I don't know if he's okay with it, but I think the kind of unifying theme about a lot of Trump's behavior is this idea of, on the one hand, aggrievement that something has been taken away from you, that you are a victim, that they are trying to take your voice, your money, your rights, your power, whatever it is, 
coupled with the fact that there's sort of decoupling from any sort of civic responsibility. This idea of it is not something that I owe to society. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Don't tell me what to do. I don't have an obligation to this greater societal whole. It isn't so much that I'm teaming up with all these various kind of crazy, abhorrent causes, but what has gone missing is that sense of looking at you and saying, you know what, that is not societally acceptable behavior. That is not acceptable behavior as an American. And not only do I believe that, but I'm going to say something because we have a obligation as our national character to say, we behave in some ways, we do not behave in another way. You know, and of course the right, you know, the current right, not, you know, the right I grew up in will say, oh, well, that's, you know, socialism or communism. And they're telling you what you have to think. No, it's not. It's sitting there and saying that, you know, you have an obligation to our nation. Our nation stands for certain things. Our nation stands for the democratic ideal of, you know, one person, one vote. Our nation stands for the idea that we should have free and fair elections. Our nation stands for the idea that we have the freedom to say and assemble and vote for whoever we want to worship, whoever we want to. These are core things of not only who we are, but we have an affirmative obligation to work towards those ideals. And that's all this is. And that's what's going away. You don't have an obligation to anything. Do what you want to do. You're your own boss. You want to not get vaccinated. You want to go barefoot to the store. You want to, you know, ask for the manager and raise hell. Go ahead because everybody owes you because you're aggrieved. You know, I think that overcomes whatever hesitation somebody might have for being lumped in with all these crazy different extremist causes. So the flip side of all of the things you talked about vis-a-vis democracy is that each individual by definition, has a responsibility to the whole for that freedom. And it's the whole, you know, the idea of like, you don't scream fire in a crowded theater. Or to take it to a community or a neighborhood idea, if your neighbor's house is on fire, like don't bring a thing of gasoline and pour more fire on it, right? Like maybe try and help them out. Um, But we've seen to be that there's this almost anarchical idea that like I can do what I want when I want. You can't tell me what to do. Maybe it's anarchy. Maybe it's nihilistic. I don't know what it is, but it's basically like, F you, you can't tell me what to do. You look at it and that echoes all the way up to sort of some of the real, you know, thought leaders within the Trump administration. I'm thinking first and foremost of Steve Bannon. At the end of the day, Bannon has an extraordinarily destructive agenda. He wants to, you know, bring in the shock troops and tear the system down. Now, it's not clear to me what he wants to, you know, rebuild in his image. I I don't know exactly what that is, but it is destruction of order for the sake of the destruction more than it is a vision of recreating in in some better image of something. Bannon's a great segue. So you probably had to fill out a hell of a lot more forms than I ever did working for the government. But I worked at Treasury and I worked at the White House and I worked at FEMA. So I had to fill out three different SF-86 positions of national security forms, right? And you do all that. And then once you fill it out, you turn it into whichever security office. And then someone, I don't know if it was from the FBI or some contractor would call and say, hey, how long have you known Reed? Well, I've known him this many years. Have you ever known him to make statements about overthrowing the United States government? Right? Like, you know, these questions like Bannon's shocks troops are the people who would have to say, yes, I'm one of them. So I want to talk a little bit about broader institutional danger as we get to 2022 and 2024. Because, you know, as I, I reread all my history and, I, you know, the, how democracies have fallen, the perpetrators of that fall, often the security services, the military, you know, the bureaucracy, they try and co-opt those people because once they take power now, the security services answer to them, the military's answers to them. And now you have the organs of the state who are able to perpetrate violence or imprisonment on your side. So how fragile 
is the FBI, the DOJ, the CIA, the Pentagon. Like, how do you see that going forward? Because there's parts of it that just scare the hell out of me. I see it as fragile. And this is a really delicate thing to talk about, because on the one hand, I don't want to terrify people. I don't want to cry that the sky is falling because it's not. You know, there are people, there are agents, there are officers, there are non-commissioned officers and enlisted personnel who all, you know, grew up in the context of the United States and all the civics courses that they took and understand that their duty is to the Constitution and not any one man. But at the same time, I saw far more during the Trump administration in terms of the corruption of the Department of Justice than I had ever seen before in my life, and that, frankly, I ever thought was possible. And when I see, particularly also within the Department of Defense, a lot of senior officers who are expressing concern about the civilian control of the military and the loyalty of the military to the Constitution versus the president and, you know, expressing concerns that what might happen in a contested election, it gives me a great deal of concern. I think, look, you know, 2022 is setting the table, as it were, for the election in 2024. You know, what does a congressional flip look like for the Department of Justice and the FBI? Well, clearly it's going to slow down. It's going to have the effect of throwing sand into the gears of investigations. I remember what the Republican control in Congress did, finishing up looking at Hillary Clinton as we were starting to look at Russian interference. Congress doesn't play a direct role in investigations, but they can hold a hearing a week. They can just drop request after request after demand after demand, asking for things that there's a finite number of people working the cases who are supervising the cases, and inevitably that will slow down or complicate just the straight conduct of those investigations. What really concerns me, though, is that if you do then flip and you return to a second Trump administration, I think there is a clear understanding to your point that as kind of more thoughtful people in the Trump realm, certainly Bannon, but others understood that they were limited in a way because they hit hard stops with even Bill Barr. There were things that Barr would not do and would not agree to conduct that they saw, you know, we can achieve a certain amount of our agenda with political appointees. But when it comes to very, you know, acts and events that would take the, as you said, the coercive power of the state, things that would take an armed law enforcement officer, things that would take a National Guardsman or a military you know, soldier, those are the things where you need absolute loyalists in those positions. And so I worry that you don't get Director Ray, you don't get even Bill Barr in the Department of Justice, you don't get the folks that you had within the Department of Defense, you get folks who are much more willing to break with past tradition and even you know, break with what traditionally is thought of you know, accepted norms and laws. And then the question becomes not, you know, we saw all kinds of politicization of the Department of Justice to protect Trump's allies. All the nonsense about walking back Flynn's plea, all the pardons that occurred, all the shenanigans with, you know, when Roger Stone, you know, Bill Barr kind of poo-pooed it when he was, you know, showing up and having on a social media postings about the judge in DC with crosshairs and Barr said, oh, that's just, you know, not a big deal. It is one thing to use the Department of Justice to shield your allies. It's another thing to sort of weaponize DOJ to go after your enemies. That's a radically different threat, and that is something where you need a much more compliant leadership. That worries me. Again, the men and women I worked with for 20, 22 years are not going to do something illegal. But the lesson of the first Trump administration is it isn't just a sudden break where you go from, you know, pointing east and suddenly you're pointing west. It is this slow chipping away and degradation bit by bit by bit. And all of a sudden you say, well, I'm going to draw my line here. And then I'm going to back up and I'm going to draw my line here. And then I'm going to back up. And all of a sudden your back is against the wall and you're not defending anything anymore. So take that and then start, you know, from jump 
you're already there with your back against the wall. And so I'm concerned about it. And I think another Trump administration, we would rapidly find ourselves in a position of considerable crisis and turmoil. I mean, you saw the summer of 20, as Trump was crossing Pennsylvania Avenue, you saw General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs in battle fatigues. As I recall reading one of the books I read, I don't think he understood why he had been called there, but maybe when he realized what was happening, maybe he shouldn't have done that. Clearly felt like if there's the light side of the military and the dark side of the military, he, he was right on that dark side line and had to back off of it as much as he could. You know, I'm, I want to stick with Millie for just a second. One of those, you know, in the interregnum between Election Day 20 and the inaugural last year, the Chinese are very concerned about the instability they're seeing. And he's back channeling saying, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. All of that for the greater good of the country and individual Americans. Now, whether or not it's Trump himself, Fox News, he is a traitor. There's a man who's given 30, 40 years to the country. He's got four stars on his shoulder, top military advisor to the president of the United States. And they're saying that he's committed crimes that are worthy of hanging him up. When you look at the leadership of the Department of Justice, when you look at the leadership of the FBI, when you look at the leadership of people who carry guns, it is concerning when you have folks, the attempt to intimidate them or to coerce them to either do or not do something. It was extraordinarily concerning at the time, and I have no expectation that that would stop. I mean, everything in Trump's last administration is when he raised a stink, things stopped. It worked for him. When he fired Jim Comey, when he fired a bunch of us, when he raised hell about the FBI looking at things related to him, it stopped. When he was, you know, complaining about what DOD was or wasn't doing in many instances, those things change. So if you do something, if you push up against norms and you face no sanction and it succeeds, you're going to keep pushing. You're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you face some response. And he, by and large, didn't face that except towards the very end when people kind of all abandoned ship. And even then it was nip and tuck. You know, the question about whether or not Rosen was going to be able to continue as the attorney general or they're going to put in, you know, whatever that knucklehead's name was who, uh, you know, was going to work to decertify the vote. So all of these, even for Trump, well-meaning people who are in the cabinet, I don't know that they are reappearing in, say, January of 2025, right, to take those cabinet positions. So the question is then, who is that initial slate of cabinet officials and what are they going to be willing to do from their first day in office? And I'm not hopeful about that. So to bring it back to present day, what are the things that give you some level of hope? And if you have the chance to speak to your fellow citizens, what would you ask them to do between now and Election Day to help preserve the republic? Well, I think what gives me hope is that people understand that there is a significant threat here, that people understand, and whether it's because they're listening to things coming out of the January 6th committee or they're reading you know, in media that they understand that not only was this a attempted insurrection to interrupt the vote and transfer the presidency, but that this also is a ongoing problem continuing into the future. And, you know, one of the things I was so happy to hear, you know, A.G. Garland talk about was not so much, here's what we're doing on and about January 6th, but this is what we're looking at right now and the threats going forward in terms of access to the ballot box and making sure that our votes are free and open and fair and using the application of the law to make sure that that is being done in a lawful manner. So I was hopeful about that. Folks need to understand, like, Garland said this is one of the largest cases in DOJ's history. In my mind, there is absolutely no parallel. This is by far and away the largest investigation that the FBI and DOJ have done in their history. I worked 
on 9-11. I worked a lot of international terrorism, all hands on deck sort of efforts, which were very broad, but very short. I cannot think of any analog in the FBI's history or in DOJ's history of something this large. And that's just looking back at January 6th. I don't think people fully understand just how complex it is to bring a case to trial, going through all the evidence, turning that over to the defense, going through motions, getting witnesses lined up. And to do that on a person, let alone a conspiracy of five people, is an extraordinary amount of work. Now, scope that up to what he was saying about, you know, 725 defendants. This is truly, truly huge. And so on the one hand, it's impressive because I know, you know, talking to friends and other folks who are still in that they are burning the midnight oil at the ground level. I have some concern that when you look at a higher level, are we still, notwithstanding all those numbers, is the senior leadership of the Department of Justice and FBI approaching this with the urgency that they need? In other words, the best analogy I can think of is, you know, when the enterprise is under attack and Kirk calls Scotty and says, hey, we need more power. And Scotty says, well, you know, I'm, I'm giving her everything she's got. You know, Kirk can look in the engine room and say, okay, everybody looks really, really busy. Okay, fine. Or does Kirk say, I need another 20%. I hear you're busy. I hear you can't go anymore, but that's not enough. Do more. We are on a war footing. There's a gaping hole in the goddamn enterprise and people are getting sucked out into the void of space. You need to do more. So notwithstanding all those people busy in the engine room right now, is this the kind of thing that we could apply another 50 prosecutors? We could apply another 2000 agents and analysts. That isn't any knock on the people already working it now who I know are busting their ass. The question is, is there's the same sense of urgency. So I'm still concerned, having heard Garland's speech about whether or not that that high-level sense of war-footing urgency is present. As far as what people can do, if you are concerned, if you hear what we're saying and say this is really concerning, if Pete is worried and Reed are worried and they've seen a lot and that really scares me, well, then get out and get involved. Make sure you're registered to vote. The far right is excellent at mobilizing at a local level. They're looking at school boards. They are looking at state electoral boards. They're looking at state Supreme Courts. For your listeners, for the people listening right now, do you know how your local school board is constituted? Do you know how your state Supreme Court is constituted? Find out and get out there and register and get your friends to register and start making a difference. Start voting. You know, vote for somebody in the middle. Vote for somebody reasonable. Vote for somebody who's going to pay attention to the law. But this sort of idea of like, oh, my God, it's bad. And yeah, 2024, I'm not going to vote for Trump, so it's going to be okay. No. If you wait until 2024, it will be too late. The way to counter this is to get involved now, to do that at a local level, to stop assuming that this is something that you don't need to worry about for another two years and six months when it rolls around into November 2024. You need to get involved right now and you need to be doing something right now. And then you need to be talking to your friends and your neighbors and your family about it as well. Well, Pete, I don't think I can finish her off any better than that. So listen, before we let you get out of here, where can folks find you on social media? So I am on Twitter at Pete Struck. That is my one and only social media outlet. Again, I've got a uh, paperback version of my book coming out here in a couple of weeks. It's got a new epilogue where I talked about some of the things we talked about today, the, the damage that Trump and Barr and others did to the Department of Justice in the aftermath of that. So go to your favorite local bookstore or national retailer and pick up a copy of that. Well, amen to that. Pete, I want to say thank you again for joining me and everyone out there. Heed Pete's advice. Heed our advice. Get involved. Don't sit on the couch. We need every hand on deck. Till next time, everyone, we'll see you soon.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.